I have letters from my father in my hand, in my hand, written to my elder brother. They were grand, they were grand. They were written o'er the sea and were forward unto me. I'm as happy as I can be in this land, in this land. I'm as happy as I can be in this land. The Stanton-Parkersburg Turnpike Alliance, with headquarters in Beverly, West Virginia, is proud to present Took Off Running, an audio history based on local memory of the historic pike. Written and produced by Carrie and Michael Klein, talking across the lines in Elkins, West Virginia. After the potato blight in Ireland in 1845, and those few years after, so many people left Ireland, especially southwestern Ireland, many of them got into this area. They came into the Baltimore Harbor just about the same time that the railroad was coming across. And those guys knew how to deal with stone, so they were hired to build bridge abutments and trussles and things like that for the railroad. The tunnels were hand-cut stone. 1867 was when they were built. B&O Railroad. The track went through Cairo, North Bend, and then it went out through Ellenburg, then Pennsburg, and right on out to Clarksburg to Grafton. But uh, they brought German or Italian stone cutters and cut it right through the rock. My dad worked at the railroad and retired from it. He used to make that run. They'd blow the horn special. Mom could hear it when we lived up on the ridge. You could hear the train. It crossed seven trussels in like three miles. He crossed the same creek. And that's how winding the terrain is into it. My wife, Bernadette's ancestors, cut those stones from the abutments from here to Parkersburg. He was from Ireland, and to Hallam Bridge here, there's an Irish settlement on the north side of the road, a German on the south side of the road, <laughs> and, and her grandfather was born in Germany. That late man spit open stone. Rolling home, rolling home, rolling home across the sea. Rolling home to the old Hamburg. Rolling home, we have to 
so she's half German and half Irish, and they all went to St. Boniface Church, but <laughs> when they went home, they stayed on their side of the road. But there was a lot of German and Irish people. I expect the population of Lewis County was very Irish. The Catholic Church was already established only briefly before that in Wheeling, the diocese, and they wanted to expand, and so they helped these Irish Catholics to buy land along where the railroad's being built. So you can just trace the Irish Catholic settlements right along the railroad, all the way across the mountains. And of course, Weston, Lewis County, is the centering. St. Patrick's in Weston, even today, has a priest directly from Ireland. The Irish come to this country and they brought culture. It was pretty backwoodsy. In other words, it wasn't very far along, you know, in, in development. Well, these Irishmen came over here. A fellow by the name of Camden had a big grant from at the top of our hill to to the Ohio River. And when they worked on the turnpike from Stanton to Parkersburg, he was so impressed with them, with the kind of people that they were. They brought the priests with them that had classic educations in France and Rome, you know. And that's who he wanted to settle this country. So he gave every one of them, I think it was 150 acres of land, to pay for it whenever they could. And they say that he never lost a penny. Camden, Bailey, and Camden were three land developers. They owned these huge tracts of land, which they had gotten by hook or by crook, in rural West Virginia, Western Virginia, early 1800s. They had huge tracts of land. And right after the potato famine in the 1850s, they would send agents to Ireland and recruit people to come here. They would sell them land on time, 50 or 100 acres, and they'd bring them here. They were building the turnpike, too. This one, as well as the Northwestern Turnpike, they're building these roads, and they're working on the railroads. Grandfather, Augustino Borelli, came to America with two other tailors, and they had jobs in Philadelphia. They got off the boat at Ellis Island, and a man stepped forward and said, uh, the jobs are gone. So they didn't know what to do, and uh, Grandpa had $12 in his pocket. So man stepped forward and said, we need tailors in Parkersburg, West Virginia, at the woolen mills. So 
Grandpa says, Myrna Hicks, West Virginia, Myrna Hicks, Parkersburg. He came here by himself, and we think we might have been the first Italian family in Parkersburg. We were one of the early ones. And uh, in 1906, he sent my grandmother and the four kids, and my father was eight years old. Weston at the time was the largest community in north central West Virginia. It was a large town on Turnpike after Stanton and Parkersburg. Weston was the location of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum because it was a transportation hub right at the intersection of the Stanton-Parkersburg Turnpike and the Weston Gully Bridge Turnpike in Weston. And when the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum was authorized, there were no public facilities in Western Virginia. None. All the rest were in the tidewater of the Piedmont. And it only came about after the 1851 Constitution. Virginia was being benevolent to the West and giving us some kind of an institution, which turned out to be the insane asylum, rather than the William and Mary of the West that we were supposed to get. That was what brought some of my people in here, was working on that hospital. My great-grandfather was an Englishman from London, but he came to Richmond, and he had two brothers that had come over here before he did, and they were in the Confederate Army and was captured and taken up to Baltimore and put in a prison, and they died there with tuberculosis, and, and both of them left families, so they felt obligated to come over and help the families, you know, help take care of the families. I am now a new creation in this land, in this land. They don't know my situation, it is grand, it is grand. All this world is dark as night, but my father's face is bright. And I'm walking in the light through this land, through this land. And I'm walking in the light through this land. But I guess you heard about this. Come down here and got a job cutting stone for the Western State Hospital. Have you been around it? Isn't it a magnificent structure? And in the back, it looks like a castle with all those courtyards. And look at the stonework that was done in that. That was grubbed out of the river bike. It's the largest hand-cut stone building in the United States and probably in the Western Hemisphere. So they tell us. It's almost a mile long. There's five miles a quarter. They brought slaves here who were also prisoners in their Virginia prisons to dig the trenches for their footers for the hospital. They also recruited workers from Austria and Germany and brought them here as stonecutters. One time there were almost 3,000 patients in the hospital. And it operated up until 1994. The asylum kept people who couldn't take care of themselves. There wasn't a whole lot of emphasis on recovery or dealing with mental problems. It was taking care of people who would have been a net drain on the family if they had stayed on the farm. Now, get the problem out of the way. Move it. Don't deal with it. I mean, you could even move yourself in there if you wanted to. You could commit yourself. The lady died in there. She's 89 years old when she died. And she had committed herself when she was 19. 
And the reason she had done that is because she was in an abusive relationship with her husband. Her husband kept beating on her. And there was nothing she could do to, to defend herself. So she committed herself to Weston State Hospital. And she stayed in there for the next 70 years till she died. My great-great-grandmother, Mason, back in the 1800s, she lost five children to diphtheria, and they buried these children out on a point, and she could look out her kitchen door and see their graves. And I don't know if that's why she lost her mind, but anyway, she did die in the asylum there. It was partly what made Weston what it was because people came through Weston. Then in 1895, somewhere along in there, they discovered oil in southern Lewis County. They had to dam up the Sand Fork for like eight miles after Copley Well Number 1 came in because there was that much oil pouring out of the ground. That started the oil and gas rush, and hard on the heels of it came the glass industry. born in Weston, 1923. 39 was when we come back to Weston. There were about three glass factories in Weston and places that decorate glassware. West Virginia Glass Specialty Company was the big one. Uh, Louis Glass Factory is on 33 going east. They've had two ships anyhow. They get their furnaces all going and they can't shut them down and start again. And a lot of employees in there and the salesmen. There were several hundred at the West Virginia. One salesman was our neighbor in there at Weston. And he went to New Orleans and spent a month in New Orleans taking orders for glassware. My grandfather was the first child in the family that was born in America. All the rest of them worked from Belgium. They were glass workers. The family came here the first time in 1880. And glass workers from Belgium were skilled. They had unions in Belgium. And they come here and they try to organize and it didn't work and they get mad. They go back. And, but they finally came back to stay about 1882. These Catholic priests came and they started at St. Patrick's on the hill behind the Columbia Club. It was up on the hill. And they said of an evening in the summertime, those priests would come out on the porch and lecture and the townspeople would gather around the house, you know, because they were so hungry for knowledge that they didn't have. They didn't have any education, you know, they're just human beings, and they had hunger for knowledge. In Buchanan, there was five Catholic families we had a priest who came to Buckhannon from down in the southern part of the state, but he was born and raised in uh, Luxembourg, Dutchman. And uh, a nice old fellow, everybody liked him. 
in the 30s someplace. He got a car. He didn't know how to drive, so Dad teaches him how to drive. Dad doesn't make a very good job of this because this guy's always getting in a wreck. And I used to cringe because I was sensitive to be a Catholic in the first place, and this gives everybody something to chew on, you know. But uh, I know he got in a collision with a train down at the Po Bridge, and then he ran over a kid's, I think it was a wagon or a sled or something, backing out of the street there, and he mashed up the wagon. He got sued for that. He's just a poor driver. My family came from Virginia. They were Huguenots from Europe, and they came over here to escape religious persecution. They were French. They came over here and started a settlement in Front Royal, and then some of them migrated over this way. Early 1600s is when they first hit Virginia. Oh, sure. This section in Frontier Times was like a miniature United Nation. You had French living down at Galapolis. It was a colony had come directly from France in 1790. You had German settlers in here. My great-grandma, by being Pennsylvania Dutch, she never sat in a chair and relaxed. She sat on the edge of the chair, and her back was a stiff. It's like she had a board taped to her. She sat that way all the time, but she never sat a whole lot. But I can always remember her telling about the kivers instead of covers. It was kivers, put the kivers on them. Sad to think a child grew up in the city, never slept beneath grandma's food that she made so pretty. All the walking fields of garments made believes for things of old held together by the binding threads I know. was a little short lady. She could stand under my arm. And my grandmother met my grandfather in 1909. My dad was born in 1915. They didn't get married for a long time because her parents were very upset that she was marrying a foreigner. Even though my dad was second-generation American, to these people who came to West Virginia with God, you just didn't do this. Yet at the same time, I have to laugh because I now know that my mother's father, that side of the family, came from Germany. Of course, they came early. They were here in the 1770s. My father was named after a Belgian race car driver who won the Indianapolis 500 back in 1915 or something. Belgians were either glass workers or coal miners because they mined the coal to power the furnaces to make glass. And my grandfather worked for a time in the coal mines, and there was an explosion. And some men were trapped and killed, and that's when my granddad left the mines and went to work in the glass factory. Her grandfather was almost completely self-sufficient. He had a farm down here on the south side of 33. His name was Leopold Rau, and he was born in Germany. But he made his own tools. He had a blacksmith shop. He could shoe horses. He made his hose, his rakes, his mattocks, his shovels, and he could work metal. I am not afraid of dying in this land, in this land. But I often feel like flying 
master's voice obey, for my soul can hardly stay in this land, in this land. For my soul can hardly stay in this land. And uh, he lived to be 96 years old and died with pneumonia. He was wire as a pine knot. Grandma was just a little lady, about five foot nothing. But we would make fun of her a lot of times, you know, a kid with her, and she'd say, don't you make me funny. In other words, don't make fun of me. She'd come to the studio, and Papa would be in the dark room, and she'd say, see, Paolo, dosta Jimmy, which meant, where's Jimmy? And I'd say, Pop, I said, Grandma's here. We're going to have onion beans tonight. So she'd stay a while, and she'd make macaroni and bean soup. Lord, good. Talking about good. I remember these German people, they showed me how to make kraut, and... We had this big jug, and she gave me the cutter, and she gave me the cabbage, and she showed me how to make it. And I went home, and Mother was at work, and I just worked. You layer it. You put cabbage, a layer of that, and you salt it, and then you put more cabbage in. And I worked all day cutting that stuff up. You had people from England, uh, Nova Scotia, she had Indians come in and trade until the War of 1812. And, of course, the slaves on this side of the river. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. Nobody knows the trouble Nobody knows my sorrow. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. have your different ethnic groups, which I've already mentioned, from America, like the New Englanders, the Yankees. They spoke often in a sing-songy nasal twang that didn't die out till the mid-19th century. You all have probably heard of Jesse James and his gang. Jesse James and his gang robbed a bank in Huntington, but he came north. Now they're on horseback. There were four riders, and they were using the Parkersburg and Staunton Pike because it's the last place in the world that anybody would be looking. They stopped in Troy, Sally Moneypenny's boarding house to eat. One stayed out and guarded the money bags which were hung on the horses' saddles while the other three went in and ate. 
This was in 1875. My father bought me a horse from the gypsies and brought it home to me. So later on, mother and dad, they, they, don't you know what gypsies are? They're people that go through the country and they set up camp and they tell fortunes. What else do they do? They trade horses. They used to back in those days. They really had no place that they called home. But they had kids, so we went. It really, we went to play with the kids, you know, they were our size. I was afraid of the gypsies, the way they talked, their language, what they used and things, that there's always wanting to trade something. They had all kind of beads and Scotty and they all dressed up as they thought, I suppose, fancy. Different from the way we dressed anyway. And Mother always told us to get in the house because she was afraid they would steal us. And, of course, that didn't help any of me being scared. And these guys come here to the house, and they had this home comfort stove on the back of this buggy, horse-drawn, and they went all over the country selling these stoves. Mom had a home comfort stove, and they were wonderful. You could burn coal or wood in them. Had a big tank on the side of it, heat water, and a big oven. It's a kitchen stove is what it was. Nail itinerant weavers that had big looms on their wagons traveled any place that people wanted them to weave up their flax, their linen, and their wool. They looked forward to drummers. A drummer was a person who carried with him some samples of clothes, or samples usually of cloth. And he would show samples and want to sell to the keepers of stores. My interest in history came from my paternal grandparents, Tracy and Allie Sturm, born in 1876. And they had uncles who had fought in the Civil War. And I was content to sit in the afternoons and listen to my grandparents talk and ask them questions. Even when I was six, seven, eight, nine years old, they were not well-educated people. They were mountain people who definitely had a mountain dialect, but they were very intelligent people. Television has done a great deal to standardize our pronunciation. When I was a little boy, you heard very often the Appalachian pronunciation of many words, and I indeed spoke words that way myself. My parents certainly did. Fish, bouche. This started to die out in the 1960s, and you hardly hear it now. The eyes become an A. That's a pile of money you have there. How many more mouths do we have to go yet?
virtually all the early written reports of settlement, not exploration, but settlement, make reference to people who are already here. Now, I would suggest that the people who were already here were those who were most marginalized in Eastern Virginia society. The poor, the dispossessed, the culturally intermingled, the result of interracial offsprings in Eastern Virginia society became more and more split along race lines. Those people did not have anywhere to go. So where are you going to go? You go west. We get away from them. Where cooperation is more important than race. And a rifle shots as far as you'll keep danger at a glance. And the color of your skin doesn't mean a damn. A rifle shots as far as you'll keep danger at a glance. And the color of your skin doesn't mean a damn. So that's one of the things that accounts for the amount of words of West African origin in Southern Appalachian dialect. There are all kinds of words and mannerisms that are traced to West Africa, as far as I can tell. The Coal and Coke Railroad through our area at the turn of the century was built 1902-1904 through Upshur County. And it went from east to west. That was Henry Gassaway Davis's railroad. Well, it was built by Italians and by African-Americans, blacks. I found some really intriguing newspaper clippings from the locals, you know, who'd go over to the post office and say, well, they felt like a stranger in a strange land. There were people jibber-jabbering in other languages. They were a transient population. Now, about the same time, mining was beginning to develop. Of course, the railroad came because Henry Gassaway Davis bought all the coal rights. This was about the time we were separating what was on top from what was underneath. There's a newspaper article about some black families that lived along Dens Run, just south of Harrisville, along Route 16. And some event occurred there. It seems like this may have been around 1900, somewhere around there. They went in there late at night, made a lot of ruckus, and attempted to scare the black families to the point where they would be afraid for their lives and move on, making them know that they were unwelcome. The Red Men organization got together and one night just got those people, and the way I understand it, escorted them down to Wood County out of Ritchie County, the Ritchie County Redmen. They were not the Ku Klux Klan, but they had an organization that was pretty secretive. They got together, and they took it upon themselves to enforce moral issues around the county. A streetcar ran from Weston to Fairmont. It was the nicest thing in the winter time. It was so hot, you had to almost take your coat off when you got in it, you know, when it was in cold weather. But supposedly, a lady was getting on the streetcar, and a colored fellow was getting on behind her, and he ran his hand up her dress. And guess what happened to him? They took him to jail, and a bunch got together and got him out of jail and hung him on a footbridge going over to the state hospital. It was an old iron bridge. 
and I saw a picture of him hanging there. And, and one of my mother's cousins was standing underneath there with a big straw hat on, you know, and posing. He and Elmer Straw was a street commissioner. They posed underneath that hanging because it, it was a mob that did the hanging. And then there was another one hung on the second street bridge. They tied a rope around his neck and threw him over. I never saw a picture of that. But I would judge it was in the early 30s, late 20s, early 30s. There was an organization of red men that was formed officially at Burnt House, which is on the Stanton Bike. And a lot of people from the area where I'm from, Beatrice McFarland and so forth, attended meetings of the Red Men organization at Burnt House. And uh, was there members of my family ever in that organization? Yes, there were. And I think there were members of a lot of people's family around here that were. They had red men badges and other insignias that they wore. Everybody, of course, back then traveled by horse. From Beatrice to Burn House would be approximately seven miles. So, you know, it was not a great trip. Their meetings were very secretive, and there was a bill passed in West Virginia, I believe, in 1908. And it was called the Red Men's Act. And it had severe penalties against what these people were doing. So the Red Men themselves ceased to exist under that name right after this. There are still descendants of some of that group of people around, and they still have organizations even to this day in existence. They're not called the Red Men, but they are social clubs or whatever you want to call them. You ever hear of the Ku Klux Klan? The Ku Klux Klan had a unit here, and they marched, and they burned a big cross, and we were Catholics. And that cross was kind of scary to a little Catholic kid. Yes, in 1928, I would have been 10 years old. But I recall that my father hated Jews, blacks. He was so prejudiced. And he was a Ku Klux Klan member. And I remember that he put on the robe and he and other men went to the top of Vaughn Avenue in Parkersburg, and they burned a cross there. Al Smith was the Catholic candidate, and my father and these people were against a Catholic running for president. My granddad is in the Ku Klux Klan in the 20s. Uh, not for long, when he found out what it was truly about, he renounced the Klan and withdrew. In the 1920s, was the big heyday of the Klan, and they recruited a lot of people. He was a devout Christian. Uh, certainly what the Klan was doing was contrary to the Sermon on the Mount. So they passed themselves off being a big patriotic organization. They got you in, you found their true motives. There's xenophobia and racism. Then, when I was in first, second, third grade, I'd come out of school, and there were three or four kids be waiting for me. They beat the hell out of me when I got out of school. For what? Because I was a Catholic. I'm not kidding. And why nobody took my part? I don't remember dad and mother saying anything about it. I don't remember the principal saying anything about it, you know? But it was frequent. In Buchanan, yeah. There was so much bitterness then. 
We had a small black community in Buchanan. They had an African Methodist Episcopal Church right behind the courthouse. It came down in the 1950s, early 60s. And then the black community moved over on the east side of town, right in front of Wesleyan College. You're in what's left of the black community. The black school was Victoria School. The Warfield sisters, their father was brought in in 1925 to be the principal of the Victoria School. And they were all teachers. They were all graduates of Columbia. I know there were slaves in Wood County, for a fact. We tore down an original old church built in 1832 with slave labor named Doug DeClay and made the bricks there down at Washington Bottom. I saved some of the bricks out of it. Through the large kinship extended groups, between 1785 and 1800, over 40 families moved to northwestern Virginia either from what's now Fayette County, Pennsylvania, along the Monongahela River, or directly from Berkeley County or other Virginia counties. Some of them came even from Fairfax and Loudoun, Prince William counties. And they just came over. Why? Land prices were going up. Slavery was illegal in Pennsylvania. Every year or two, a few more families come until within 15 years you have virtually transplanted an entire neighborhood from one area to another area. You virtually recreated the kinship neighbor group that existed someplace else. Those agricultural areas had, of course, black slaves. And in fact, Wood County at one point had the highest percentage of slaves of any county in what would become West Virginia, except for Jefferson County. By doing a simple study of the 1810, 1820, and 1830 censuses of Wood County, determined that in each of those three censuses, one out of every seven inhabitants of Wood County were slaves. 15% of the people who lived in Wood County from 1800 to the 1830s were slaves. And one out of every seven families owned slaves, some as few as one or two, some as many as 40, 50, and 60. The West Fork River area of Lewis County was probably, after Wood County, the greatest concentration of blacks on the turnpike outside the Shenandoah Valley. There were probably two or three hundred slaves in West Fork, mostly agricultural slaves. In the 1860 census, which is our first official census, there were quite a few slaves in Upshur County, probably two or three hundred. My father's grandmother, when they come from Alamaro County, Virginia, they came in my wagon and she brought four slaves with her. And one was a male and three females. I've got a copy of her will in there that she willed that the executor of her will should sell the male slave and use the money to educate her younger children. And my grandmother was, I think, a baby or just a small child when they came here. They wound up here between Upshur and Lewis County on Hacker's Creek, right near the county line. She had everything in her will, what she wanted done. And slaves, see, was personal property, just like a cow or a horse. Those slaves were driven in chains across the turnpikes. 
They were bound together because they could easily run off into the woods. Coffles were groups of slaves being shepherded to market to be sold, in this case, down the river, which is where I believe the expression originated. Nobody knows the trouble I see. Nobody knows my sorrow. Nobody knows the trouble I see. There were auction blocks along the river. Eastern Virginia, when the soil was depleted by tobacco production, had a surplus of slaves, so they were wanting to sell their slaves down to the Deep South. On some of the old bridges, there are, are hooks that people used to be shackled to there, but they said the major holding facilities were below ground. Oakland was a plantation. Before the Civil War, my great-great-grandfather freed his slaves and gave them property just off the edge, and they built houses and were hired then to work here. He wasn't a mean slave owner, I hope. (laughs) No, I think he was very nice. When I discuss slavery in class, I always ask the same question, how many of you would choose to be owned by another individual for even a second. And not one hand has ever gone up. And so even well-treated slaves were considered to be chattel property and could be bought and sold. And they had no civil marriage. Husbands and wives who had a dozen children could be separated. They had absolutely no civil rights. Dad was Cecil Amos. They were slaves. And Aunt Mary, Aunt Martha, and Dad's mother, they all came here from Amosville, Virginia, with the family called McClungs, pushing a wheelbarrow. When the man said they were free, they just took off running, <laughs> you know, pushing a wheelbarrow, walking. I want Jesus to walk with me. but what they could carry in a wheelbarrow. They didn't even know where they were going. I think they were just going north, and they didn't know they were still south. (laughs) Because they really call us south. 
They came here with the McClung family, and they all roosted right here in Parkersburg. Hold my hand, Lord, please hold my hand. Hold my hand, Lord, please hold my hand while I'm on my The Henderson brothers, who also came from Prince William and Fairfax counties, they together owned over 60 slaves, and they had sizable plantations all along the Ohio River, where they became planter aristocrats, and all three of them were justices of Wood County. They gave their plantations their own names, individual names, Bacon Hall, Beach Park, other names like the Virginia farms and plantations across the mountains had. Virginians were called Tuckahoes. The New Englanders were Yankees. And the boundary line between these two cultures was the Ohio River. Marietta was a planned New England settlement across the river here. And they immediately started fighting over the issue of slavery. She had a few abolitionists among the Yankee crowd in Belpre across the river and Marietta. When the New Englanders came west, they brought their school, they brought their church, they brought their Masonic lodges, and they were essentially town dwellers, although a fair amount of them lived on farms, and they would help slaves escape. really heated up in the 1840s and 50s. We had a very famous case here called the Garner case, named after Peter Garner, who was an abolitionist. And he and some of his friends arranged for some of the Harwood family slaves to escape from the plantation over in Wood County and land in the middle of the night on the Belpy shore. And then the abolitionists were there waiting to help them spirit them away. And Wood County white folks got wind of this, and they were concealed. And as soon as the slaves landed and were greeted by the abolitionists, they swooped down on them and they captured all the abolitionists and took them across the river to the Parkersburg jail here. And boy, if it didn't hit the fan then, because that was an invasion of free territory by these slave owners. And the governor of Ohio got into it, the governor of Virginia, 
and it was nationally known. It's called the Parkersburg Outrage. Well, there are many such stories of escaped slaves and the hurt feelings, the anger that were engendered by this clash of, of cultures. And there were some Belpre abolitionists who didn't dare walk the streets of Parkersburg. One of them, Mr. Stone, was severely beaten by a mob and they discovered his identity. In the Virginia papers, even in the Marietta paper, Wood County slaveholders would advertise for runaway slaves. Slave called Tom, sometimes they would call him High Yaller, be a light-skinned slave, or a dark black male, approximately 35 years of age, well-built, sturdy, uh, several teeth missing. They would advertise physical features and they would post a reward and there were professional slave catchers. Well, I would not be a slave driver. I'll tell you the reason why. Cause if my Lord was to call on me, I wouldn't be ready to die. Everybody sing, wait in the water. Water. God's gonna trouble the water. In the 1850s, a professional slave hunter named Kirby lived on Letterhast Island. But he wouldn't have been on the island if he weren't a part-time farmer. They earned his living in part being hired by slave owners to go after their runaway slaves. The Fugitive Slave Act made it a criminal and civil offense to aid or abet a runaway slave anywhere in the United States. That was a federal law passed in 1850. And between 1850 and 1861, a slave caught in any state could be returned to its owner and anybody who had aided or abetted was subject to the criminal and civil penalties. The word abolitionist was a dirty word. There were people who were very much anti-slavery who didn't want to be called abolitionist. So you have to understand the climate they were living in. If you were a conductor of the Underground Railroad, in the eyes of the law, you were a criminal. You look at the census records of Wood County, and by the time the Civil War had erupted, there were very few blacks living here because they'd either been sold downriver or they'd escaped. They were just too close to the border to be kept. Well, I would not be a backslider. I'll tell you the reason why. Cause if my Lord was to call on me, I wouldn't be ready to die. Everybody sing, wait in the water. Wait in the water, children, wait in the water. God's gonna trouble the water. As the poet Southey said that a society is founded on faith. And what that means is you need this mass of citizens to act in a certain way for government or society to operate 
in an organized manner. What if everyone in the United States or most of the people decided one year that they weren't going to pay their income tax anymore? There aren't enough people in the Army or the Navy or the local police forces or the militia to compel them to do that. So you have a case where the slaves willingly stayed on the plantations until the war got closer and closer and a spirit of freedom grew among them that they just started running away. Ada Hot Murphy at McFarland identified the crumbling chimney standing yet at Cisco as a part of the old, ruined Vogel property. The house was there before the Civil War and was rumored to have been used in the escape route of the slaves to the north one stop on the Underground Railroad. That's in western Ritchie County. When people stayed overnight at the inns, there were multiple opportunities to free somebody. You take your pick. There's a wide range of people who could have been assisting the fugitive slaves to free themselves. There were a couple or three underground railroad stations in what's now Ritchie County, run by mostly ministers, northern ministers. The slaves went from one safe house to the next. They traveled during the night, led by a conductor a person who led them, and then they would hide out during the day in a safe house or an underground railroad station. July 12, 1863, John Moss was assassinated by a neighbor, and his family has always said it was because Mr. Wass was a conductor of the Underground Railroad. Mr. Wass's son, William Wass, said that when he was a child, he got up early one morning and saw black people in the barn, and he immediately realized his father was a conductor of the Underground Railroad. Mrs. Wass would cook an extra pan of food and give the pan to one of the children and say, take this into the barn. There's a road from Burnhouse that takes you north, and that would take you to the home of John Wass and it would be within an easy night's travel. There was a place at Burnt House where the stagecoaches would stop and the people could rest and eat, and it was also supposed to be haunted. And there was a man who owned this way station, I guess, or place for the people to stay. His name was Jack Harris. And he had left Randolph County in 1836 with two covered wagons and some slaves. And he had a son, William, whose mother had been a slave. And they came to Ritchie County and they built a two-story log structure and a barn for the horses and stables and a tavern where people could spend the night before heading on into Gilmer County. And peddlers would come through and stay at the tavern. And one day, two peddlers mysteriously disappeared and was never heard of after that. Talk began to go around. Could they have been murdered? What had happened? People gather round and have a listen And the tale of dead man's hollow I will tell 
Where scattered leaves lie scattered through the willows Near the Harris family tavern and hotel In 1836 the problem started As peddlers spent the night along their way Some would wake to see a mountain morning while others disappeared without a trace Folks for miles around have often wondered Why the peddlers or their goods were never found With no evidence to show How could anyone have known That the bodies lay there hidden in the ground in dead man's hollow scattered all around Hack peddlers were very often agents of the Underground Railroad. So I have wondered if the disappearance of guests at the inn, if they were disappearing at night, it was for purposes of their own in many cases, and lies would have to be told. The owners of the stagecoach line hired a Pinkerton detective to investigate the tavern. And William, the son of the owner, and a slave named Ben, they soon became suspects in the murder. One of the slave girls that worked in this tavern was called Delcy, and I guess the slave girl had witnessed the murder, and supposedly they had taken them up a holla, and to this day it's called Dead Man's Holla, and I don't think they ever did find the bodies. While walking through the willows late one evening, a stable hand heard voices in the night There with pick and shovel stood his master Beside a grave he dug by a lantern light Folks for miles around The girl became very depressed And one night during church Someone said that the tavern was on fire And so they all left church and... By the time they got to the tavern, it was ablaze, and through the upstairs window they could see the slave girl twirling and dancing in the fire. Now one of these days around two o'clock. And for many years after that, Delcy's flame form could periodically be seen near the dead man's holla. So, I guess that was the ghost story of Burnt House. They tell me years ago that there was a, a house there that used to house runaway people. But that's what they told me. They was hiding some kind of people there, and they found out about it and caught them. They just set the house on fire. 
so they couldn't do it no longer. <laughs> it was my understanding that Burn House was a place there where they put up travelers, and I don't know if it was the owner of the place or somebody else got into the business of robbery and was robbing some of these people as they stayed overnight at the Burnhouse community. Some of these people, having been robbed, burned this place down, and therefore came the name of Burnhouse. There used to be slave quarters at the end in Burnhouse. I can remember when they were torn down. Anyway, the way the story goes was the son of one of the slaves became romantically involved with the slave and left for whatever reason. And the new owners of the place were going to sell her over in the Tidewater because they thought she was involved with some kind of runaway scheme. And to prevent that from happening, she went up to the second floor and one of the owners were away at church, set the hotel on fire with herself inside of she was dancing out on the balcony when they returned and the place was going up and smoke and she went up with it rather than be sold over in the tidewater. But there are a lot of variations on that story. There's two people who wanted to be lovers, but because of this multicultural America that we lived in at that time, they couldn't do that, you know? Keep people apart and divided. And look at the tragedy that resulted. And this kind of stories were replicated all over America. Now no one knows for sure what really happened. And the mystery of that hollow still remains. Some say the truth was buried there forever. In that grave without a marker or a name. Folks for miles around have often wondered the peddlers or their goods were never found with no evidence to show how could anyone have known that the bodies lay there hidden in the ground in shallow graves they're scattered all around they're in dead man's hollow scattered all around And almost on the county line, in Work County, was a hotel called the California House. It was there in the 1840s when the California Gold Rush was underway. California came here in the early 1800s from Bath County, Virginia, and Bushrod Washington Creel was one of the first ones, and he came in 1805, and George Lemon came about the same time. And they were the early settlers here, and they were the early oil pioneers because they found out very quickly that there was oil coming out of the ground. I'm sure that the Creels probably had slaves.
the owners and operators of the hotel were slave owners, but slaves and free blacks were always among the most likely suspects as conductors of the Underground Railroad. So it's probable that the slaves at the California House were acting as agents of the Underground Railroad. In Parkersburg, on 7th Street, you will see a mansion on several acres of ground. Beautiful pre-Civil War mansion owned by a man by the last name of Stevenson. He was a slave owner, and he was influential enough to arrange for the toll gate on the two turnpikes to be in front of his mansion, and he probably used some of his slaves to collect the fees there at the turnpike. The Stevenson Mansion is where two major turnpikes converge on the Ohio River city of Parkersburg. This house is situated at the juncture of the Northwestern Pike and the Stanton Pike. James McNeil Stevenson, my great-great-grandfather, built this house in 1832 to 1835, and nobody but the family has ever lived in it. He was on the Virginia legislature for several years and had to drive by horseback from here to Richmond. Most of the furnishings in the house are original. The beds were all made from wood that they cleared in the property. And it's a pleasure to be able to live in a piece of history. There was an abolitionist settlement here in Wood County, and these abolitionists helped runaway slaves. I have been told that free blacks had to have white sponsors or they could not live in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Now, that may be what the abolitionist colony in Wood County at Valley Mills may have been involved in. It's very mysterious why they came or if they were directly involved in the Underground Railroad. But one of the colonists at Valley Mills was... West Virginia's third governor, William Erskine Stevenson. Stevenson is remembered for his work as governor for holding up the rights of the black citizens in the years after the Civil War. raised in Parkersburg, West Virginia, and we lived on Clay Street. And Clay Street was a street that was all black, with nothing but widows and widowers. That's the truth. And uh, everybody was all the kids' parents. If you did something wrong, they reprimanded you. Other parents did. And we all accepted it. I guess I'm the fifth generation to have lived here. It was built by my great-great-grandfather. It's, I guess, the first house in the Juliana Square Historic District, if you're coming from downtown. The family moved in here then in 1878, and the family at that time consisted of William Nelson Chancellor, his wife, whose maiden name was Ellen Charles King, 
They had three daughters. The eldest was Nellie Scott. That was my great-grandmother. So we were, from that point on, a four-generation household. And we had, in addition, two servants who lived in. My mother, she was college-educated, and she couldn't get a job as a secretary. So she had to do domestic work, which she didn't mind at all. And I can remember many times somebody would knock on our door. Mom would go to the door and she'd come back and say, well, we've had a blessing. And I'd say, what kind of blessing? Well, Miss So-and-So wants to know if I'll come and cook dinner for her guest tonight. Mom worked all day long, and she came home probably around 7 or 8 o'clock at night. And I can remember she'd come home and she'd holler for us, come on, kitties. We are going to have dinner by candlelight because we didn't have any electricity. It was turned off. But she always made everything seem so pleasant, you know. There was a cook whose name was Lou Moton, and Mother always said that Lou's parents had been slaves at Oakland. And then Charlie Webb was the houseman, and he lived in what we called the barn, but fancy people called the coach house. And that had a little apartment upstairs in it. Charlie had been with the family from the time he was a boy, from the 1880s, up until the time he went off to a retirement home at the end of World War II. We never had Thanksgiving dinner on Thanksgiving because uh, Mama had to cook for the family out there. But they always gave her a turkey. But everybody was crazy about Mama. They always did nice things for her. The oldest girl had TB when she was younger, but she took care of that child. They didn't want her to go to a sanitarium. And Mom had to scrub down the walls and the beds and everything would lie because it had to be sanitary. And uh, I don't think Mom ever thought about that she could have carried that home desk. Well, it's a cozy house. I find it cozy. <laughs> Maybe some people find it kind of awesome. Uh, the woodwork in this place is remarkable. So you have 10-foot-tall double doors, pocket doors, huge deep baseboards. All the windows in the house are fitted with shutters. And on the main floor, they are walnut, too. Indoor shutters. The maid was a woman named Mary Ivory. That always just fascinated me, that she could be dark as ebony and had the name Ivory. <laughs> It was just wonderful. And Mary had a sister named Melinda Washington, and Melinda had a son, William Webb, who was around my age, and he was called Snuffy. And we used to go up to their house and play a lot, my sister and I, when we were little children. And I think sometimes Snuffy came down here and played. And that was fine until... We probably got to school, and then at that point, you weren't supposed to be socializing with someone of another race. And so Snuffy went off to the segregated school, and we went off to the white children's school, and, you know, didn't really see each other much anymore. 
I attended Sumner High School. It's still standing up there on Avery Street. It's now a museum. It went all the way from first through high school, but they graduated seniors from Sumner. Robert Simmons was supposed to have ridden a horse to Washington, D.C. to talk to President Lincoln about starting a school here and wanting a building for that. And Lincoln told him to go back home. Go back home and tell your people they've got their school. The Westland Church was the first place that they made the school, and then I think Logan Church was another place that they had the school. This building was built in 1929. This was the gymnasium. The school set up on the hill up here. Charlie Webb, the houseman, was an active member of a lodge, a colored men's lodge. I know they had a Masonic Lodge here. They had their own American Legion. And I don't know what this lodge was, but he had regalia that went along with it. It must have been the same sort of thing. All these men's groups from Masons on down, the odd fellows, they all had a certain amount of ceremony and all of that stuff. So Charlie had a whole social life that this family knew virtually nothing about, but that was an important part of his life, I think. K.P. Hall, that was the Masons. K.P. Hall and Clay Street upstairs was their room. We used to have cake walks. Whoever won, won a cake. There was a strutting dance that you did, and a lot of the old men used to do it. It was called the cake walk. Jess Hicks and the Brigadiers. It was just a group of black men that played instruments. They were good. <laughs> Mr. Albert worked here for a long time in the yard, and he started a band for the small black children were starting to get into a little bit of trouble, and this was back in the 50s. And he started a band, like a rhythm band, and had all these little black children playing in the rhythm band and keeping them on until they were older and older just to try to give them something to do. You've been listening to the voices of Noel Tinney, Steve Lehew, John Law, Joy Stalnaker, Paul Borelli, Duke Talbot, Nancy Allman, Frank Williams, Ray Swick, Eleanor Reinhardt, Joanne Hefner, Damon West, Mary Garrell, Frida Morris, Phil Sturm, David Scott, Jim Hawk, Winnie Murray, Sandra Burke, Betty Lutz, Fran Davis, Ralph Davis, David McCain, Catherine Brown, and Richard Cook. Music was performed by Jenny Hawker, Andy Fitzgibbon, Greta Van Doren, Sven Jensen, Jimmy Triplett, Robbie Carruthers, Joe Herman, Michael Klein, John Lilly, Carrie Klein, Hannah Thurman, Bill Gorby, Chanel Kopic, Swannigan Ray, Peter Koski, a portion of the Voices of Triumph Community Gospel Choir, Mike Evans, 
R.P. Hale, Seth Young, and the following members of the Elkins High School Rhythm Band, Joey Hotchsang, Charlie George, and Caleb Gartman. Took Off Running was written and produced by Michael and Carrie Klein of Talking Across the Lines in Elkins, West Virginia, for the Stanton-Parkersburg Turnpike Alliance, with support from the National Scenic Byways Program of the Federal Highway Administration and the Oakland Foundation. Mary Ramey and Phyllis Baxter are executive producers, with special assistance from David Scott of the Ritchie County Historical Society and Bob Enoch of the Wood County Historical and Preservation Society. For Talking Across the Lines, I'm Michael Klein. Music